Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Becky Cull, attorney at Conan and Patton. Hi. And Mary Curran Hackett, author most recently of the novel Proof of Angels and writing teacher at Xavier University. Hi. And me, Abby Moran, a member of the board here at the Mercantile Library. Today we are discussing the first volume of War and Peace, you may have heard of it, by <laughs> Leo Tolstoy. And a warning, there will be spoilers discussed today, so proceed at your own discretion. So we've gathered a little discussion group at the Mercantile um, that is going to be working on War and Peace in four chunks, the four volumes kind of split out to about 300 pages each. And we had our first session discussing volume one, and we wanted to get the group together and kind of discuss you know, how the discussion went, what we think of volume one. Um, but before we get going with our discussion, I'm just going to provide a little brief synopsis of volume one. So we're dropped at the beginning of Tolstoy's novel into um, a party at a society ladies' home in St. Petersburg, and we meet several of the key characters um, of the novel in this scene, and, and including Prince Andre and Pierre, and um, I'm going to butcher some of the Russian names, I'm sure, during the course of the, this podcast, so this needs to be like a... Um, a full of grace discussion, right? <laughs> we are just no judging, no judging, no tests, no pronunciation standards. Please feel free to contact us and correct us or send us the pr pronunciation <laughs> in the comments. We welcome your feedback. We welcome right, your feedback. right. Yes. But please give us a positive score on iTunes. First. Yes, yes. <laughs> to soften the blow. Okay, so then, um, then Pierre and Prince Andre break off after this party, and they go, and you see that they've been friends for a long time. And Prince Andre um, tells Pierre not to go out and, um, and party that night, but Pierre doesn't listen to it. He swears, he vows that he won't go. <laughs> but then he swear, then he, he thinks about it and he's like, well, I really do want to go see my, see my drinking buddies. So he Plus goes he vowed out. to his drinking buddy that he was going to be out. So. A, oh, a vow, right. oh, yeah, a he, had, vow, he had competing it's a vows. Conundrum. That's right. It's a conundrum. He did have a conundrum. It's a real issue. Oh, my gosh. So We've then, all been there. And, yeah, and then, so there's just this fantastic... Um, party scene, uh, the kind of after party is very wild with Pierre and his friends. We can talk a little bit about that uh, in a little bit. And then we switch to Moscow and we see the Rostov family and we uh, meet Natasha and, and Boris and Nikolai and Sonia and Count and Countess Rostov. Um, we learn that Pierre's father, the Count Bezikov, um, is very ill and um, he uh, was quite he, the ladies' man. Yeah, he was quite day. the ladies' man back in his day, in the era of Catherine the Great. And Pierre is his illegitimate son, mm -hmm. and so he is not in line to inherit Count Bezikov's considerable fortune. And people, there's a great line where um, 
they say that Pierre's greeted like a leper, you know, mm -hmm. by the by the other princesses. Like nobody nobody wants to <laughs> hang out with Pierre. He is just no he is bad news for them. So um, there everybody's wondering who's going to inherit the Count's fortune. And Pierre is so awkward at his um, at his father's deathbed, I think. But um, basically, with the help of Anna Mikhailovna, Boris's mother, um, Count Rostov's fortune and title and everything ends up going to Pierre. So he's declared like a legitimate son. Count Rostov dies. Pierre becomes the new Count Rostov. And immediately, his social status is transported up like five levels. So then Prince Vasily, who is, um, or is it Vasily? Vas Vasily? Vasily? I was saying Vasily. I was Vasily? saying Vasily. I was like going with Oh, that. I'm sure we just sound so Midwestern, but, you know, <laughs> okay, forgive Gosh, us. Darn it. Forgive us, Russians. Um, Bless your heart. Right. But, um, so he is such a, a scheming manipulator, and he um, basically convinces Pierre uh, to, marry his, to marry his daughter, Prince Vasily's daughter, Helena. Helene. Mm -hmm. Helene, yes. And um, Prince, or Pierre knows that it's a bad idea from the beginning. Like, he can just feel that it's not going well. It's not going to end well. And then we meet Maria. And I swear my short synopsis is almost over. Um, then we meet um, the old Prince Balkonsky. Is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, Prince Andre's father and, and his sister Maria or Maria. Um, and uh, we learn more about that whole, that whole situation. Um, and Prince Vasily's trying to marry Maria off to one of his sons, who the party animal son from mm -hmm. earlier in the in the volume, and uh, that is a disaster. They do, they do not hit it off. Instead, the son Anatole hits it off with um, the French companion of Maria, um, and they they kind of get busted in an embrace. And so Maria says, "No, thank you. I am not interested in marrying you." Then we, um, we have a lot of battle scenes. Things are not going well for the Russian army. Um, we get to see the, the, um, in the merry, uh, cheerful preparations for war and then the actual like, brutality of how it actually turns out for the soldiers. Both Nikolai and Prince Andrei are, um, are very idealistic as they prepare for the battles, but... Um, and they're kind of set up against each other. So there are several, like, um, several characters that are obviously already paired, and we're, we're getting to kind of see the contrast between, between the two of them. Um, so I think that, that's where I'm going to end with, <laughs> end with my little synopsis, and then we'll get into more of the details of, of how, things are, how things actually unfold in this first volume. So ladies, what did you, what did you think about, what were your impressions um, of, of your first reading, your first experience with War and Peace? I think I was really struck by how fresh it still seems. I think at one point during our discussion group, we talked about how incredible it is that this book is 200 years old, and yet still some of the descriptions of how people behave in society or what people's motivations are in society translate perfectly through to today. And um, you know, so all of this action takes place so far in the very upper echelons of Russian aristocracy. And here our middle-class and Midwestern book discussion group related perfectly to a lot of the mannerisms and motivations that were being described by Tolstoy here. Exactly. It's just so universal and, uh, and timely. I kept thinking, even the, the, when they were talking about war and politics, it could have been what we're talking about now. You just you remove the players, you know, egos and, um, you know, sides and taking sides. The whole... Um, 
I guess, theater of war um, and everything that was going on, the machinations behind the scenes within the war, it, you could just see it. And um, it just seemed, it resonated really well with all of us. And what I would like to say is this is my first time at the Mercantile Book Club and bravo, Cincinnati, because this room was packed. This is, that's the other thing. This room it was packed two layers of seats around it with all of these um, invested, interested readers who were all relating to it at all different ages, all different walks of life on a very visceral level. And I just thought, wow, that's, this is why this is the greatest American, or greatest, not American, sorry, greatest novel um, of our time because think about how it's transcended all these generations, all these years, and then sitting around this table we were all in some way touched by it so differently. So it was amazing. So I have a question about that designation as the greatest novel of all time. This is some, the, a point that's made in the introduction um, by our translators, who are really excellent translators, I yeah. think, have done a really fabulous job with this. Because um, we're reading the translation by Richard Peviar and Larissa Volokonsky. Yes, um, from 2007. Just, right. Fan, really a fantastic translation. But one of the points made in the introduction is that Tolstoy refused to characterize this as a novel. But I'm not sure what else it would be. Have you, did you guys feel like we're moving out of novel territory in what we've read so far, or if, if we've moved into some kind of unique? I think he was innovative in a lot of ways. Um, I hate like trying to uh, in, um, inject or infuse what an author's intention was in any way. But from a reader's perspective, you cannot experience this any other way than it being a novel. It, to us, it's a novel. But to the author, it could very well have not been meant in that way. He might have been envisioning it in a completely different way or trying to write or execute in a very different way. But I also think there's a, a level of humility there of to it, too, I think. To what he's mm -hmm. saying. Yeah, to there's what he's saying. Also, though, like the, our concept of the novel in the last 150 years has shifted so much. And it's that changing maybe, today. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this was, he wrote this in the 1860s. They said that... Um, he wrote from 1863 to 1868, um, and he spent five years of ceaseless and exclusive labor. But, you know, the understanding of the novel, and it was serialized, yeah. too. Um, so it was published, you know, gradually over time. And, um, you know, this that was before modernism. I feel like reading this, yeah. I think, you know, he most certainly had an impact on the fiction that followed him. But, you know, what was he, to him at that time, what did a novel look like? Mm -hmm. You know, it may have almost been like kind of a derogatory... It could have been. It could have been a popular thing where he was trying um, not to be popular. He was trying to dive in um, deeper into, you know, the nuances. This was more than a romance. This was more than a, you know, a moral tale. This was more than that. It was epic. It was, you know... Uh, on such a huge scale um, and so different than, say, you know, your Russian um, Pushkin or um, Chekhov or, um, you know, short stories or theater, which they were so um, renowned for. This was something completely, you know, revolutionary or, you know, different. Do you think in the sense that it's kind of historical fiction, would that maybe have set it apart from what came before? Perhaps that there was such an infusion of the real, like that Bonaparte so becomes ambitious. alive mm -hmm. and is playing a part. Like, honestly, that was the biggest shock to me. Right. Yes, me too. Right. When 
I was like, Napoleon is a character? Like, he is showing up and he is talking to a soldier, a character? I was blown I away. I loved that. Did so you? did I. Oh, I yeah. loved it. And I loved emperor, it. The and the emperor, emperor, the way the emperor is described, all of it. Even I was, the Austrian emperor and how, uh, the how Austrian like, dull he is knows, during yeah. the conversation right. with Prince Andre. Yes, all those things. And it was like he brought history. I feel like he was grabbing it from the ether and putting it in a book in a way that hadn't been done before. It was not like history was going on in the background. Like we're setting the stage, like Tale of Two Cities. You look at Charles Dickens and um, you have the Marie Antoinettes and you have Robespierre and you have this historical context. And actually, now that I think about it, I haven't read it in 25 years. I can't remember what, I can't differentiate the historical context, what my teacher was telling me about the time right. oh, and what me. was in the book. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Because your teacher needed to explain to you. Okay, this is the background. This is the background. This is what's happening. Let me lay the scene out for you. And what um, Tolstoy does so brilliant, brilliantly is just like that opening scene in the house he inserts you in the drama. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Chekhov did. He put you in the parlor with all of these people and so that you were sitting there and um, experiencing everything from, a, from a, you know, that vantage point. So I thought that was just amazing that we would get um, this face-to-face -face with Napoleon. Well, because that's what happens when you read is don't you feel like that? Like you're, you fall into the book and you're reading and you're in this room and all of a sudden Napoleon shows up. I was like, Amazing! I got very excited. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then you have to put the book down and go attend to your little daily task. Like, <laughs> oh, I just said it's, goodbye to Napoleon. I know, and it was so magical. Like, and you're like, oh, this is how it happens. This is how dictators come in charge and just take over yes, all the world. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like you're falling in love with Napoleon, as like other people are, and his presence and everything. And um, it's just interesting. I thought it was very and and also like the um, our first close up with Napoleon when Prince Andre is wounded at the end oh. of um, volume one, Napoleon is actually much more compassionate with those, I, with those prisoners than he could have been. I was expecting I him was to so be human. brutal. I but. was shocked by that. And I was like, what is real? What is fiction? Is this what Tolstoy is imagining? Is there um, some sort of historical reference where Bonaparte said, take those men on stretchers, Let's get him to the hospital. To my doctor. Yeah, to my doctor. Exactly. Right, right. I was like, what that happened? Well, and was it because they were part of the nobility too that he recognized that they were noble noblemen and officers? Would he have treated just foot soldiers, serfs like that? I don't I don't, I don't I have no idea, but I thought what was interesting is we got to go inside of Napoleon's mind, I think. Now, I can't remember if it was a quote or is an internal monologue because Tolstoy moves in and out of those quotes uh -huh. and internal monologues where he is admiring the noble death, the assumed noble yes, death yes, yes. of Prince Andre and how um, it appeared to him a noble death. And, you know, he almost seemed pained by what he was witnessing and seeing and mm -hmm. that these young men were, you know, on these fields left to die. Um, and, and they were kind of forgotten by their, you know, they're Russian leaders, and he's like, here's Napoleon, like, I guess I'll take these, these Russian yeah. guys back to my place. Yeah, right. the nobles. The nobles, it, so. Yeah, because I think it was some, there was something that one of the other, maybe one of the other soldiers said that they knew that he would be happy to see these Russian gentlemen, 
or these Russian? They pick, they picked out especially the um, the officers that had their special special uniforms or special plumes, yes. as we talked mm -hmm. about, for, to speak to Napoleon. And then Napoleon was pleased with kind of the saucy responses that he got from the first two guys that he talked to. I mean, that kind of back and forth about asking how your enemy is doing and what he expects of himself and then being pleased with his, you know, his still kind of feisty response yeah. was really surprising to me. Um, so right. Right, I would be really interested to know how much of this is Tolstoy's imagination and how much of this was based on what he was able to read and study about Napoleon and all of that. Yeah. I mean, as a novelist, Mary, do you have any, <laughs> do you have any idea how he would have approached this task of writing this book? Honestly, that's what I keep doing. I keep putting the book down and going, holy, excuse my French, you know what? Like, how did he do this? It's, it's monumental. When you think about what is going on in one scene, mm -hmm. um, the magnitude, the, um, the close-up, the detail of, it's almost like, a Renaissance painter or something so um, precise and so detailed and huge in scope, um, almost like the Sistine Chapel of books. That's how I can, if you would, mm -hmm. would equate it to art, is how can he see this massive thing, all of these families, two pages worth of relationships, lists of people, um, the historical significance, and then lay it out there and um, as an as I can only speak from where my experience is is I need to um, read a little I do some research but then I need to go to the page and just sit and imagine um, what I'm seeing what I think I'm seeing and I kind of just transcribe that um, and that's kind of what emerges um, but I I mean, there's a reason why I'm not told Tolstoy. Yes, it is um, from a unless you do it kind of thing. Like you can't imagine what a task, what a monumental task it is. Think about just to read it. We were all like intimidated to right. read this book, right. to right. lift this book up and carry it, or to not like fall asleep and not get a black eye, which I did. Like if it falls on you and boom, like you, there are, you know, um, it's just huge and it's scope. And so I think what he achieved is incredible. It's hard to really, as a writer, to wrap my head around what he accomplished here. Scale of the task. Because when you even look back to, say, for example, what our translators did, mm -hmm. um, included all the historical notes. And I, as when I was in college, I was... I, textual criticism, which is like a really boring term for evaluating and comparing books and editions. And I did Willa Cather's 100-year um, anniversary editions. And we would go line by line, and we would write notes on each, you know, the historical significance, changes in the text, which they do in this translation. And it is nothing short than extraordinary and mind-boggling to see the depth of each sentence when you look at what he's he's pulling and extracting, the scope of history, this when he mentions even the fatted calf. Oh, have we gotten to that point yet? The, no, uh, not yet. He refer he just put says, a dollar in the spoiler, spoiler jar. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert. Well, he he's at making a very flippant reference to being Pierre's being a prodigal son. Mm -hmm. um, bring me the fatted calf, and 
you know, the translators have to go and explain the biblical significance. He's not just drawing on history. He's not just drawing on French history. He's drawing on allusions to other literature, other um, dance, theater, art. He brings the right. art, the piece of artwork mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's mind-boggling what his brain was like a gothic cathedral, like giant. Oh, I love re- the way, I love that. It was a cathedral with light just breaking with through. all the little side chambers. With too. side chambers yeah. and interiors little- and exterior buttressing because um, there was this, like all of this like net around the whole story that's happening. Right. Because just the war piece on its own is extraordinary. I mean, to think of like tracking all the historical information and then making it so vivid and effective to us even all these years later. I mean, just that is amazing. But then you've got this whole parlor drama of all of the romances and the intrigue and the inheritance also happening. I mean, either one on its own would be amazing, but to have them operating alongside one another and then intersecting is awesome. I mean, it's just... it leaves you I mean when just thinking about it now it leaves you breathless but it does also here's the other thing is I'm looking at he also is taking all these um, microscopic moments putting them um, you know under the microscope and looking at all you know the the mustache of the upper lip and the curl of the lip of the the beautiful wife Um, you get the lapels and everything Mm -hmm. Um, you get descriptions huge descriptions of battles but and it's never boring Mm -hmm. It so is, it's almost like you, <clears throat> excuse me, you read and you're like, tell me more about this person. Right. He does it in such a rich and welcoming way that, okay, I really have to go to sleep now. I got to put this chapter down, but I really want to know what happens to this character. But then also on this whole other layer is this, the big questions. Um, like, why are we here? And why is it so hard? And there's this line, um, where he says, afraid of the unknown, that's what. However much we say the soul will go to heaven, we know that there is no heaven but only atmosphere. In the middle of these conversations with soldiers about war and everything, they're having this inner dialogue about where are we going? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Like, What will happen when we cross wh- the line? Wh- what will like happen when whole, we cross the line? Right. What is all of this about? And you have Pierre's really deep interest... Um, introspection and right now he's an atheist and right now he's wondering what the purpose of his life is and I could give you a spoiler (laughs) what happens but he and then in book two you know it's kind of incredible his about face on everything um and it's in all of the war in all of the peace is this underlying um human want and need to understand where we belong and why are we here? What is this all about? And we're getting it through all these different vantage points. Like someone here in the group talked about the women, how aimless their life seemed um, or unimportant it seemed because it wasn't attached to this higher purpose of war um, or... Or a higher purpose of anything. Or anything, really. It was like about what they were wearing or what their needlework was. And they were kind of... And but there were some characters, some women who were holding life, you know, by the reins, you know, like I this um is it Natasha was, oh, yeah. you his know first, mm-hmm. his first um 
portraits of Natasha are so vivid. You can yes. tell that she's his favorite. Yes. Right. Yeah. She is alive and ready to like live life. Right. And there's um, that one scene in the um, I think it's in the in the dining room at her parents' house. Um, and he says that she pricked her ears up and she knew, you know, she alone kind of knew what what the undercurrents of the social dynamic were. When she recognizes that she knows that it, it's, she, her brother has oh. sent a letter to his parents after yes. have, having been away at the front for so long without any kind of communication. And his father and then... Um, Anna Mikhailovna. Anna Mikhailovna are trying to plot a way to break the news to his mother that they've received a communication. He's wounded but fine. And all through dinner, they're kind of laying the groundwork in these hints. And Natasha picks up on all of these hints and is so in tune. But right, the description of how she responds and how she's behaving in response to all of that is incredible. And that's actually interesting that you bring that up because the juxtaposition how they are so concerned and worried about saying this very grave thing, acting as if it's this horrible, oh, traumatic thing, and it's a, this deception in a way. Another layer, that's the other thing, a theme that's going on is all of these layers mm -hmm. of deception. Um, and so that's all farce. I mean, that in and of itself is like laughable. And then you th link back to what's happening to Prince Andre mm -hmm. And how that all plays out, it's just an interesting comparison between the two. Oh, so. God. I mean, some of these characters are just great. Like, I love Prince Vasily is so fascinating to watch so. how he's such an oily manipulator and how he, he like, you know, parades Anatole out to the Bolkonskis right. to, like, try to make a match. And Anatole just has that effect on women. You know, they're all just kind of powerless in and his gaze. And you know all these that lonely, guy. These you lonely women out in the country. Yeah, totally. We all know that you guy. Know that guy. And you know Prince Vasily, too. He works <laughs> the room. The description of when the two of them show up in the room and they create these false familiarities that everybody's happy to play yes. along with and wants to be a part of. Yes. And so I think we talk a lot about, um, you know, this... this um, book becomes like the gothic cathedral and not to make it so intimidating but I mean this is also just a really fun book it to is. read and these delicious. characters are hugely it's it's delicious it exactly. is delicious I sit in the morning and I like I go to bed early now so that the first thing I get to do is I can't wait to go to sleep because when I get up <laughs> I'm gonna read I had to move it to a morning time because I wasn't going to bed uh, it was it was a page turner I was yeah. like I need to find out what are, who's gonna marry who Who's going to end up with who? Because um, those are the things that are, you know, interesting still. Like, to all of us, that's why we read. It's the tension between characters and what's going to happen, the evolution. We all know how the war ends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Spoiler. Yeah. We all yeah, know right. what happens, like, in the grand scope of history. But what we... we have fallen in love individually on different levels with each one of these really colorful three-dimensional characters that he has created he is a world creator so listeners we're going to wrap up and okay. if you um but if you too um feel like books are just delicious things and you look forward to waking up early so that you can <laughs> spend time with with them uh, this is your kind of place. Like you belong at the Mercantile Library, and you might possibly belong in our War and Peace discussion group. So we're <laughs> going to be meeting to discuss Volume Two, Volume Three, and Volume Four on the second Tuesdays of the month in April, May, and June, respectively. Um, so feel free to um, check that out on the Mercantile Library's webpage um, and join up. Join us. 
can also, you'll be able to follow along with our literary journey um, via this podcast. So, um, but thank you. Thank you, Becky. And thank you, Mary, for joining us today on the 12th story. And thank you, listeners. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Becky Call and Mary Curran Hackett. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and all of our upcoming events. Have a great week.